we will hear it, or we will gain greater knowledge about something, and then suddenly it means more to us. It was meant to be repetitive, but still teach us each time we listen to it. Poetry is that way. Things that are well written are that way. Okay? All right. Uh, so that, that's kind of the idea, and poetry then is meant then to reach into the deepest part of our understanding, even if a part of our understanding, consciously we don't get it, unconsciously we do. Does that make sense? It resonates, we're not sure why. The key of knowledge was restored. I don't know why. There's something about this thing that just gets me. Okay? All right, so... So when we talk about uh, the way Hebrew wrote, uh, if we're going to look at some, somebody like Tennyson, out, out flew the web and floated wide, the mirror cracked from side to side. You know, again, it's the cadence, it's the amount of words, but a lot of times in many uh, English poetry, there's going to be a rhyming of uh, words, right? That's why it logs in our brain so well. Well, part of what happened with Isaiah, and he really is a product of Hebrew writing and Hebraic uh, poetry writing, is that Isaiah is going to do something like, the ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. So instead of rhyming words, he's rhyming Ideas. Now, one of the things that you watch Isaiah do over and over and over, as does Proverbs and Psalms, and it's just the Hebrew style of writing the things that will stick gently in our mind, is that a lot of times he will, these rhyming ideas, to get the point across, they will either be parallel, like the ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, or it will be the contrast. It will be the opposite. Uh, my people, the, the foolish have gone astray, but the wise hear the master's voice. It'll be something like that. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about that type of poetry is it translates well in every language. It does. It does. Uh, and that's kind of the idea, is that it's going to be able to be translated into where we are, and it's going to hit that part of us that resonates with that little part. And every, every uh, society will know something about how animals recognize their master. You may, have not, you may have never owned an ox. But does your, but if he is say, but the dog, uh, our dog knows his owner, and the cat knows who feeds him. <laughs> Okay, we go, oh, yeah, okay. There's an image there suggested to us. We go, okay, I'm there, I got it. Okay? Uh, so that, that's uh, part of why Isaiah is tough is that, again, we just need to begin to see this as poetry. We need to see the beauty in it. And if you decided that you're going to try and read the Book of Mormon very, very quickly, I would just hop over a lot of Second Nephi because you're going to get frustrated with that part of it. Uh, in fact, we used to tell our investigators a lot of the missionaries, why don't you start with, read First Nephi and then Messiah. <laughs> you know, as you're spiritually in a different place, you're going to understand better Isaiah. But let's not get bogged down in all of that stuff until you have the spiritual 
teeth to handle this thing. Okay? All right, questions on that so far? Does that make sense? I'm going to try and... Uh, 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 there's a book that I'm, I'm using uh, quite a bit. I have a friend of mine, uh, Donald Perry, who is a uh, professor at BYU, and, and Donald Perry and uh, Jay Perry... I'm grateful to Jay. He actually edited my first book for Deseret Book. Uh, the, Perry, the Perrys wrote a book called Understanding Isaiah, uh, which I would definitely recommend. I've got it on my Kindle. Uh, and a lot of what the Perrys did when they looked at Isaiah, Understanding Isaiah, is that when they show you the text in there, it will always be in, in poetry form, in, in phrases, so that you can see the way that it lays out. So some of this that I've copied, I pulled straight from Understanding Isaiah because they did a good job of laying out so you can see how the ideas are presented. Okay, Does that make sense in terms of the poetry? Okay. Point number two. Um, Victor Ludlow, uh, who as a... It's funny, I, I was a, uh, some of these guys I get to brush shoulders with a little bit at, at BYU. Uh, Vic Ludlow... Um, Still teaches at BYU, and I've at, and and I, I I taught in a class behind him in Education Week uh, a year or two ago, and I and I and I said, Brother Ludlow, I said when I was a freshman at BYU, I had I had Isaiah from you, and I said, okay, we're both older now. <laughs> I said, how old were you? When you were teaching Isaiah at BYU. And he said, I was the youngest professor at the time. I was 24. Wow. He was three years older than me. And he had his PhD. And he was teaching at BYU. And he was teaching Isaiah. And he was doing it beautifully. So a lot of what I began to... My love of Isaiah began by seeing it through Victor Ludlow's eyes. And by the way, you know, he didn't use at BYU, he didn't use the King James Version. He used another one, Isaiah, that was uh, published by uh, the Jewish uh, something society. And so they had it in a little more common language. Uh, that's what I, and that's what uh, Victor Ludlow worked off of. So, but he'd been around forever when it comes to understanding. Few people understand Isaiah like, like uh, Victor Ludlow does. Uh, or even, or even uh, Donald Perry that we're just talking about, who was on the team for the Dead Sea Scrolls and has a chance on a regular basis to go study the Dead Sea Scrolls. So. But anyway, here's, here's what uh, Vic, Lud, Vic Lud, Lud, Ludlow said about this. At the beginning of Isaiah's ministry was a time of peace of both kingdoms, since neither Assyria to the northeast nor Egypt to the southwest had strong rulers, who threatened the part, that part of the Middle East. Both Israelite countries were becoming more cosmopolitan as increased trade and prosperity improved the wealth of the urban upper classes. Meanwhile, the lower classes and rural dwellers experienced, see if this sounds familiar, experienced increased taxes, land acquisitions, social inequities, idolatry, wickedness permeating all social levels. <laughs> Thus, wealth, social injustices, immorality, and growing pagan worship came to characterize both societies with the greatest decadence being in Samaria. That sound familiar? Yes, it does. We just got this creeping wickedness that's coming in here. 
and it's coming at a time of peace. That peace won't last long. And Isaiah is about to warn them that this, this, these days are over. But it's just this creep of all of this stuff coming in. And as a result, you watch this upper middle class becoming richer. And you see the lower class becoming no longer middle class. They're just lower. And so part of, that's my way of saying, part of understanding Isaiah is seeing it in the context of where it is. It's about the history. Because what he will do is he's going to bounce around a lot. Sometimes talking about five years from now. Uh, a lot of this talking about 50 years from now. And then he, he will then jump to our day. And he'll do that back and forth. Okay, So sometimes we get mixed up with that. It's a little bit like trying to read the Doctrine and Covenants without knowing the history of the church. Wondering what prompted the, res- the revelation. Okay, So we're going to try and keep up a little bit with some of the history. Uh, by the way, history-wise, do we know who Isaiah was? Turn a little bit about him. Uh, he was a royal. In fact, uh, all signs indicate the fact that he was Hezekiah's father-in-law. That Hezekiah married his daughter. Uh, which is kind of fascinating in the sense that... So that means that Isaiah is, is a royal. He's part of the royal courts. That means that Hezekiah is listening to him. As is about four kings. Uh, the last king that wouldn't listen to him was Hezekiah's son Manasseh. Who uh, is the one that will, uh, according to... According to tradition, put Isaiah in a tree and saw the thing in half. That, that's how he would die. That's Manassas. And that was his grandfather. Yes. Yeah. I know. And because they didn't, a lot of them didn't want to hear what Isaiah had to say. Okay. Now, so part of it is understanding. We have to understand his poetry. We have to understand it as history also. Now, let me mention one other thing, and I didn't put it in the PowerPoint slide. And I don't want to belabor this too much, nor make this too complicated. But there is one additional problem that's coming up. The king after Manasseh is going to be, or Manasseh, is going to be Josiah. Now, Josiah is going to, Hezekiah is going to bring us rebuild the temple Josiah is going to bring back the scriptures and that's going to be a good thing and a very bad thing well how can that be a bad thing Josiah was very young and he surrounded in his court he had a group of scribes around him that uh, have been come to call the been called the Deuteronomists the idea of the Deuteronomists were that we have to restore the... Because they've been caught up in all of these pagan Baal worshipers, stuff like that. We've got to bring the worship and the understanding back to the Torah. Back to uh, uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And to the law of Moses. Now because it's kind of lost, how do we know what is truth and what is not? Well... This, group, this cobble of experts around King Josiah are going to make themselves the experts. And what will happen is that they will bring a very incredibly strict interpretation to the, to the words of Moses and to the law of Moses. 
And out of this, out of the Deuteronomists, will come the scribes and the Pharisees. How do you know whether, how do we know, for instance, the law of Moses says, keep the Sabbath day holy. How do we know what's holy or not? Well, if you walk 10 steps, that's holy. 15 steps, and you violated it. And they started to bring that strict interpretation to it. That's one thing they did. The second thing they did, and this is the, this is the more dangerous part, and this is what makes this a little more, more tricky, and another day we'll talk a lot more about this. Um, that was that if we're going to make it the law of Moses, we want people to really dig into the law of Moses, and they begin to change some things. And they begin to pull out, listen to this phrase, they begin to pull out the plain and precious truths that were originally in the Bible and replace it. And, and just give us... So Deuteronomy is a stripped down version of Exodus because things have been taken out. Like what? What will we not find great discussions of all the way through uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? What's missing that had to be restored by modern revelation? The temple... Now, we had some of the temple ordinances, but some are taken out. What else? Think about modern revelation. References to the Messiah and, and much more uh, uh, literal interpretation of who he was, would be and how it would work. What else? It seems to be missing from the Old Testament. Eternal marriage. Priesthood. Which priesthood? Melchizedek priesthood. Where in the Old Testament are you going to find a discussion about Melchizedek? Where in the, in, the Mel, in the Bible do you find a great discussion about Enoch? It's missing, isn't it? That's the stuff that was taken out by the Deuteronomists. How do we know? Well, there are a number of documents out there uh, that come from other areas. Samaria... Uh, Mesopotamia, uh, even uh, Nagamati, which was uh, some texts that were discovered in late 19th century, start talk a lot about Enoch and Melchizedek and the priesthood and the Dead Sea Scrolls talk about men that could become gods, the, the children of light, they're called. Any of that in the Old Testament? No, the Deuteronomist took it out. And Zenus. Yes, and Zenus and Zenic. That's why, for instance, Deuteronomy will say, let me give you a quick example. Deuteronomy will say, uh, God, the, the, the children of Israel, when they were at Mount Sinai, never saw God. Hmm. Enoch, or uh, Exodus says, they saw God. Why? The Deuteronomist changed it. Um, the original text said uh, that, that wisdom and knowledge come from heaven. That we have to reach to heaven and we are taught by heavenly wisdom who we are. Deuteronomy says in the Shema that the Jews repeat every week, says that true wisdom and knowledge comes from where? The book. It's in the law. That's why it is you had this battle between Jesus and, and, the, and uh, the Sanhedrin and he would say you have to be baptized 
and follow me and listen to my word. And they would say, we have the book. We're the children of Israel. We keep Moses' law. We're saved. The authority is in the law. The authority is in the book. We don't need anything else. What does that sound like? They were, they were pulling some stuff out that they didn't necessarily believe and just leaving the stuff in. So there was a shift from belief in, in uh, following ongoing revelation coming from heaven versus it's in the book. Follow the law. And the book gives us the authority to do what we do. And if we strictly follow the law of Moses, that almost doesn't matter how wicked we are. As long as we follow the law, we, cannot, we will be saved. We will be in Abraham's bosom. Again, who does that sound like? The Bible of Bible we have. It's a parallel. That's what I need you to hear. There was a parallel situation here that is exactly that. Which is, the, the remember, we've talked about that when the Book of Mormon showed up on the scene, the problem with the Book of Mormon was not what was in the Book of Mormon. The problem was it existed. Its mere existence without even cracking the book was an incredible threat because to all of these ministers and to most of Christianity, where is authority to do and say what we do? In the book. Sola Scriptura was what was in, in Scotland. Solely the Bible, solely the Scriptures gives us the authority to do what we do. And the presence of anything else outside of that is an abomination and a threat to the Bible. And most Christians still struggle with that idea that there is additional revelation, additional books, additional prophets, because it threatens, if that's true, then it threatens the sola scriptura, the fact that the Bible is the Bible, and the authority is there. Does that make sense? So Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomist did the same thing with the Old Testament. It's about the law. That's why Laman and Lemuel went, well, they keep the law of Moses, they can't fall. Because they're righteous, doesn't matter what they do, they keep the law. Okay, this may veer off what you want to talk about, but how do you, how can we teach people that are caught up in Bible? You know, they can't have any other scripture. How can we help them to see the, the truth? How can we? Because I actually had a conversation with someone last week, and I, he was very. He's caught up in a Bible, a Bible. Yes, and I, you know. <coughs> Yeah. The, if you want to do that another time, that's okay. I know you have not done. No, that, I think that's a good point. Just real quickly, sometimes that, that discussion about a Bible, a Bible with our Christian brothers and sisters depends a lot on how willing they are to learn. Sometimes they're just, they have really no intent of learning anything more. And then I think it becomes wasted breath. They'll quote that's probably Revelation, too. Yeah, they will quote Revelation at the end. And, yeah. and so we can have all of our great discussions about saying, well, you've got to understand that Revelation's that was just for that revelation and that was compiled 400 years later. And, and, and if they're in a, in a believing thing, they'll hear it. If they're not in a believing sense, they're just not going to hear it. Yeah, okay. okay, yeah, Kimberly. Yeah. If there were more words of Jesus, would you be interested? Well, that's a little bit threatening, but 
That's one of the reasons why I've loved the line of reasoning that says, do you guys believe in the Bible? Who is the Mormon church? We believe that God brought, that, that Jesus established a church, men changed it over time, and it's been restored back. So do we believe in the Bible? We believe we wrote it. We, we do. Really? That's pretty arrogant. I know. It's an audacious claim. You ought, to, you ought to listen to missionaries and find out. The cheek of that thing. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, so, the, that's, so why, are, why are we talking about all this with Josiah that is still about uh, 10 years, 20 years down the road from when Isaiah is writing? Simply this. The Deuteronomists under Josiah are going to change, are going to, they're not going to change, they're going to uh, heavily edit the Bible that we have. Because if it's straightforward and they disagreed with what it was saying, they were going to edit it out, they're going to redact it. What happens though if you have revelations that are coming that are more in parable and they're, and they're more couched in poetry? Are they going to be a little bit more protected from the from the editing of the Deuteronomist? Yes. They are. That's why Isaiah. That's one of the reasons why Isaiah is a little, a little more vague, a little more symbolic, a little bit more poetic. It protected the book from the editing. Does that, does that make sense? It was the Lord's way of preserving Isaiah in its beauty and its power. But but it's one of the reasons why Nephi. And other prophets have said, you're going to have to have the spirit of revelation to unlock all of this. But, but it's not just that, it is also just understanding how he wrote. Okay? Now, how's that? We spent half the class trying to get and we haven't even looked at verse 1 yet. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did too. Until I really started understanding and writing this. If you want to have a fun exercise, if you're really bored, um, a lot of this, a lot of the great work on this has been done by a non-LDS scholar uh, who was invited to come to BYU and give a forum, and she, her name is uh, Margaret Barker. Margaret Barker gave a forum at BYU uh, uh, 2003, uh, and a number of scholars, John Gee, uh, Daniel Peterson, um, a, a, kind of picked up her mantle and understood what she was saying. And she's the one that has done marvelous work. She's the one, as a, as a non-LDS scholar, uh, she spoke in the Library of Congress uh, symposium they had on Joseph Smith, and she said, in all my writings, I've, I've written extensively about the tree of life and how critical the tree of... There was a tree of life in the temple, and it was supposed to be there. The tree of wisdom and everything. But she said... No other scholar understood the ancients like Joseph Smith because he's the only one who understood that the fruit was white in the tree of life. Nobody else, could, nobody else picked up on that. It ma- and it matches perfectly all the ancient writings of Enoch and, and all of those. So she wrote a thing about Deuteronomy? Oh, she's written extensively on Deuteronomy, yeah. Margaret, if you'll just go LDF, Margaret Barker, oh my, you're just going to get a ton of... Margaret Barker. Yeah, Margaret Barker. She, she's pretty incredible. But, but w- bring your seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty good. Okay, so that, so that said, so, so if I set the table enough, 
We understand it's poetry, we've got to understand the history, and we've got to understand that it's going to be a little bit symbolic to protect it from being edited. Okay? So is uh, Margaret Barker, is she LDS? No. She is a, she's Methodist. She's still Methodist. Uh, and she, but she's a biblical scholar, uh, I think, and Cambridge educated, I believe. All right. All right, so let's start, let's roll out with about 45 minutes left. One of the, again, one of the nice things I love about this class, we can go as fast and slow as we want to, and I don't, I don't intend to spend the next three years on Isaiah, though we could without breathing hard at all. But I want to be able to spend enough, a, a few weeks that we really begin to get the flavor, because I do have this other agenda. I want you to love Isaiah. <laughs> okay, so let's start with uh, Isaiah 1. Okay, we know that Isaiah wrote between 740 and 700 B.C. Uh, we need to understand at this point also, and if we're looking at history, we are about, we're a little, little over 100 years away from the, the uh, abomination of desolation, the complete destruction of, of, of Jerusalem and Israel by Nebuchadnezzar. The Lehi gets out just in the nick of time. So it's so in some ways, uh, Isaiah becomes the Samuel the Lamanite of this world. He's about 100 years out and he's warning like crazy, this is about to happen. So, this is a vision of Isaiah, uh, son of Amos, uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, in the days of these kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, wicked Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And he won't live through uh, his son. So, now... Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. What you're going to find in the first few chapters of Isaiah, this is, the Lord is about to destroy Jerusalem, or allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. Now, before he does this, he's going to make a case. <coughs> and it's going to be written in, in words that they would understand, so it's going to be like a judge testifying in a court. So he's about to state his case, why it is that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. So you'll hear some of this, okay? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. And then, and then like we were just saying, the ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They've gone backwards. So he said, so let me just start. You guys are pretty bad. <laughs> and let me explain what bad means. And now he's going to get us a lot more detail about what that means. Now, so let, read this as poetry for just a second. What's he saying in verse 5? Why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. Why? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. You hear that? Why? What's he saying? Put that in our words. The whole head's sick. 
Meaning, who's the head? Whoever's in charge. Whoever's in charge. Your leaders are sick, but, but it, he could say they're really bad people, but he's saying that they're sick. It means they have an illness. It means that they are, they are they're diseased. Your whole head is sick, and the heart is faint. Meaning what? They are. That part of it is that they're weak. Oh. Sorry, I guess I think it's hard. I think of women. Yeah. Okay. And and we're going to talk a lot about women in just a second. He's going to use that analogy a ton in the first four chapters. But if the heart is faint, what happens if your heart is faint? You faint. You don't have courage. Yeah. There's one. No faith. You, I'm thinking a little. Yeah, your heart's just not in it. That's probably a good term. Because there's this sickness, this malaise that has creeped into everything. It's not just about actions. It's a way of being. It's a way of living. Your heart is faint. And again, does this sound familiar? If we were... If, I didn't watch it, but my guess is if anybody, if any of you watched the Grammys last night, you might understand. Uh, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. <laughs> there's a bit of a, there's a malaise. There's a belief about what is what is real and what is not, and what is stupid and what is believable. Okay, our spirituality is on life support. We're sick. Okay. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land stranger. Wait a minute. I thought they were at peace. Why would he be saying your country is desolate? You're going to be. Soon. Not yet. But soon. So part of what he's talking about so now you start saying, oh, he's talking about what's about to come. Okay? So, country's desolate, cities are burned, your strangers devour it in your presence. Wow. You sit there and watch while they ransack your houses and all that. Okay? Now, so, so let's go real heavy on, on a couple of things. Of, uh, and here is the, here's the symbolism he's going to use. Here's the words. Here's the picture he's going to paint. So that people really understand it. And he's going to paint it in a way that they would understand it. He's going to paint it in a way that we will understand it now. And here's how he's going to do this. Verse 8. The daughter of Zion. Zion is going to be compared as a daughter. And as a woman. Now. Why would he use a daughter? To be the symbol of Jerusalem and of Zion and of Israel. Why a woman? In she said, in those days, was the wasn't the woman owned by? But it, she wasn't. She could. She was sort of owned. But in another way, she was at the very least subservient, subservient and married. Because when we talk about the, 
the Savior coming. Think about, think about the, the parable of the ten virgins. Who are we waiting on? The bridegroom. Absolutely. So here comes the bridegroom. And in this case, the bridegroom, the husband, is God. Is Jehovah. Yahweh. It's, it's God. So that means that if He is the husband, then Jerusalem is the wife. It's, it's the one that is reliant on, on her husband. And that's language that they would understand. So he's going to talk about her as the daughter. And sometimes, so sometimes when we talk about Jerusalem, we talk about uh, Lady Israel. So, so, because she is seen as that. And he's going to paint this picture of Lady Israel. And she is, she is the wife of God. And he's, and he's going to try and take care of her. Now, before I even go any further, though, I want you to... So here comes the parallel symbolism. Jerusalem is this woman... And then he's going to contrast it with... Let's, for, let's run all the way down to verse 21. How the faithful city has become an harlot. What is the difference between a... The, the image he's painting of a faithful wife and a harlot. What's the difference? Nine day. Opposites. They're opposites in what way? How do you how do you distinguish? Righteous. Okay. The daughter of Israel was considered clean and virtuous. Clean and virtuous. What and what separate her from being clean and virtuous versus a harlot? Who does a harlot go with? Anybody who will pay her. Right? She can be seduced. And wooed, and she will go with whoever is paying out the most. And she is not faithful to just one husband. She's going to go with whoever she wants to based on what they will give her. Why would Jerusalem now be, why is he calling her a harlot? That's pretty harsh. Who is Jerusalem and Israel going with? The highest bidder, right? In this case, it might be Samaria. It might be Egypt. Babylon's going to come. They're gonna, Hezekiah's trying to buy off. You know, don't attack me yet. I'll pull gold off the doors of the temple to, so you leave us alone. So you get this image of the, the, and try and separate the, in, in our mind. We just kind of go, okay, are they a faithful wife who's going to listen to and obey her husband because she's kind of owned and and all that, that, tr that tradition. Versus, she's going to go wherever she's... Now, he doesn't just take it here though. I think that, so, what would, a, what would the harlot look like? Well, he's going to paint that picture as well, right? Let's hop over to Isaiah 16, or 3, 316. What would she look like? Oh, well. <laughs> Moreover... Because the daughters of Zion, these faithful wives, and we're actually going to get there. This is a this is a double image here. Okay, one is going to be prosperity; they're doing well. They are they are rich women, and but the other one, if you just take it at that level, you miss it. 
He's wanting to say this is also the harlot woman. And, and how is she going to look? Well, she's haughty. She's walking with stretched forth necks. And, and the key there is what kind of eyes? Wanton. 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 Meaning what? She's looking around. Who wants me? Who, who, who's going who's gonna to flash the cash? That's why this isn't just a matter, this isn't just a, well, they were really rich, rich women and they were wearing all kinds of rich stuff and then they got destroyed, which uh, there's some of that. But even more than that, this is the image and he's going to paint the picture. What does the harlot Jerusalem look like? Well, she's kind of walking around with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a tinkling with their feet. <laughs> what is mincing? I remember, uh, I remember uh, seeing a, an article uh, about uh, Marilyn Monroe. And uh, Marilyn Monroe was, was, I guess, walking down the street talking to an interviewer, and they said, we just don't understand your uh, the, the sex appeal. I mean... I mean, you're very pretty and, and, and all that, but, you know, you're not a real great actress. And, and, and what is the deal here? And she said, uh, true story, she said, let me show you. You stand here, and I'm just going to walk down to the end of the block. He said, okay. And she turned it on. And from there to the end of the block, in the way that she moved, the way that she walked, the way that she held herself, and they said, guys just about ran into walls as she walking <laughs> down there because she could turn it on and she could turn it off. That's, that's the wanton eyes look. And so, so for Jerusalem, the sense of being a, the harlot woman, th- this ability to be looking around, that's who you are. You're just not faithful to me. You're not faithful to your bridegroom. Now, incidentally, there is a bigger image of this one. Just let me throw one more layer on there. Revelations 12 talks about the, the, the woman that is the church, and she goes off into the wilderness and all that. And so the woman is the church. The woman is the bridegroom. Is there another woman out here that is the antithesis of that? That the Book of Mormon talks about a lot. She is the? How is she described in the, in the Book of Mormon? The great whore of all the earth. Yep, there it is. That, is. that is the contrast. And there's the difference. The one that will be faithful, the one that will stay true to her covenants, Versus the one that walks with mincing wanton eyes and will go to the highest bidder. And the, and the rejection of Israel is that you have become her. If you want to read more about the difference, go to, go to Proverbs. Proverbs all the way through is known as uh, Lady Wisdom. And, she, and especially Proverbs 3 and really Proverbs 8. You're going to see in Proverbs 8, this faithful woman, Israel, Wisdom, and 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 the old scripts call her the queen of heaven. Pretty cool. All right, so let's go back then. So I get that image. I'm dumping a lot on you. Sorry. Yeah. We're just swimming. Swimming. Did you say the old scripts called her the queen of heaven? 
What's that? You said the old yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'll show it to you real quick. Okay. I don't want to get too. Here is what the old. Uh, it's in Jer- Jeremiah, forty-four. Old Jeremiah. After Jerusalem falls, uh, Jeremiah is going to go find some of the exiles, and they're going to be scattered out there, and and they're going to say to to uh, Jeremiah. We will do whatsoever thing cometh forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the Queen of Heaven. That's who they believe that they are worshiping, and it's and it's out of Proverbs, eight, or out of uh, yeah, Pro- Proverbs eight. But anyway, all right. But I'm not. Uh huh. Okay. So where are we? Oh, that's right. We're in verse 10. <laughs> of Isaiah 1. <laughs> There's another... Okay, so he's going to say the daughter of Zion is left as a... And listen to these images. Again, read it as poetry. Left, left as a cottage in a vineyard and a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. See the parallels? Okay, the par- uh, you're going to get two images. The cottage in the vineyard and the lodge in the garden of cucumbers. Okay. What does that mean? I don't know. Israel's left as what? Yeah, now there's a cottage in a vineyard. Is the vineyard productive? Sure. Okay, so here's this. Picture this vineyard. And here's this cottage. And who, who's going to live probably in the cottage? The, the, the caretaker, right? The care, whoever's going to take care of the vineyard is going to live in a cottage. Okay? Productive vineyard. But Israel is left as a cottage in the vineyard, meaning in all likelihood the cottage is empty. So you've got this vineyard and, and people, the, the caretakers have been hauled off. That's one image. Here's a second one. If you're looking at Israel in those days, if you're looking at it from the top looking down, what would dominate Jerusalem? The temple. The magnificent temple of Solomon. And what he's basically and surrounded by the people and the cities of Israel. And here's this magnificent temple. And he said... The city of Jerusalem has been left as, instead of a temple, you got a cottage. It's already really been destroyed. You've been you reduced this magnificent temple down to a cottage. So it's kind of desolate. You get this feeling of desolate, and then he's going to say not only that, kind of like a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. You were magnificent. Now you're down to just little lodges and cabins and. Little shed looking things. The pickle. Yeah, it is kind of a pickle. And that for the pickle. Very nice. Well, are cucumbers easy to grow or something? Are they like a weed? Why? why I don't know. That's a good question why he would use the analogy of cucumbers. They are easy to grow. They're, they are easy. I planted it once and. And they won't go away, right? Yeah, I thought that they were. 
Ah, okay. I, I like that. So that, that might be why he's used that analogy then. Now, this was an easy thing to do. And you couldn't even do that right. The head is sick. The heart is faint. Okay? Alright, now. He's going to give us that image. But here comes the next image. And this is, this is pretty striking. This is amazing. And you have to understand, again, a little bit of history. Uh, except that the Lord of hosts has left unto us a very small remnant. Everything's been carried on. We should have been as Sodom. We should have been like Gomorrah. And then he's going to take it one step farther. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Whoa. Give ear unto the law of our God. There's the parallel. Word of God, law of God. Ye, ye people of Gomorrah. Wow. So now he's likening him to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let me ask. What were the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? Immorality was second. And not taking care of the poor. That's first. Let's, let's go over to Ezekiel 16. Uh, 48 and 49. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Look at what their sins really were, the ones that were the most egregious. We could say, well, homosexuality is a tough one. We say, worse than that, much worse than that are these. This was the, this was the thing I could have put up with that stuff, but what, what will cause, we've talked about this before. If you, if you have a city and you want to make sure it gets destroyed, what two things do you have to do to make sure a city gets destroyed? Persecute the poor. Per, persecute the poor. Stone the prophets. That's, that is the ready-made count on it. Your city is going away. And Sodom and Gomorrah did, and that they managed to do both. This was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread. You had bread. It isn't like you were in a drought. You had bread. And an abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. I've told the story before, just, just as a reminder. Remember, one of the things that Sodom was famous for is the fact that a stranger would come stumbling into Sodom out of the desert, kind of that desert area south of the Dead Sea, down there. And they would come in, and the people would be... Loving and caring, and they would say, um, here's some gold for you to go buy food. We don't want you to have to starve. Here's the gold. And they would have their names on it, by the way. Everybody had their names on their own gold. Go buy you some food. And this person would say, wow, this is awesome. And they would go to buy food, and nobody would accept the money. And they would literally starve to death in the streets of Sodom with gold in their pockets. Because nobody would feed them. And then the, then the people would come back and say, well, they're dead. I guess I'll take my gold back. Or the other thing that it says that they would cast nets over the, the fruit trees to keep the poor from getting to the fruit. Um, so there were just these games that they would play and it wasn't that there wasn't great 
abundance in there. It's just that they would not give that abundance to the poor. How did you know that? <laughs> about Sodom and Gomorrah? So, yeah, about those things, about the how they give them gold and they wouldn't... Oh, there's a whole stuff. Uh, this, is, this is contained in, um, in the Hebrew traditions, the Mishnah. It's one of those things that were actually taken out of the Old Testament. And, and those traditions are, are out there. Sometimes they're oral traditions that got written down. Uh, oh, they used to do some incredible things. You know, they just... Give them a bed in the middle of the street. For some, you're hungry, we'll give you a bed to sleep on. And then if you didn't, if you didn't fit the bed, then we'll cut you down the side so you'll actually fit the bed. I mean, oh it was just... Gosh. There were a lot of games that they would play with the poor... And they just starved them. They just starved them out. It was just a whole series of things. So, so you get that sense. And and by the way, look at fifty. What else was the problem with Sodom? They were haughty and committed abominations. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Okay. Doesn't that haughty sound a little bit like the the view of the of the uh, harlot Jerusalem walking with wanton eyes and men? You know, all that, okay? All right. So when he's going to say, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our, our God, ye people of Gomorrah. What's he accusing modern Jerusalem of? Starving the poor, right? And remember, they, the, there was abundance. They were doing well. But they were playing games in a way that left the poor starving. And that the Lord will not abide. Now, let me take one step back then. Is that a caution, a tale of caution to us as a church now? Yes. Why? We have wealth in abundance. And the, and the danger is what? Yeah, not sharing that abundance. Okay? Now, if, again, if we're not careful, we talk about wealth and abundance, and we have it. Who are the poor in our midst? Are those that don't have the knowledge poor? They're poor in spirit. And it's incumbent upon us to feed them, right? Who else are the poor in our midst? The ones that are actually poor. There are those that actually financially struggle. And that's why we're supposed to give a generous fast offering. Generous. Much more. Than I also think that the poor are the, those that are, have had the, or have the knowledge, but they're fading because they're not... Those whose hearts are faint. Right. Okay. And we're supposed to buoy them up. Buoy them up, strengthen them. Good point. What else? Well, doesn't it say, and I can't remember where, it says if you don't take care of the poor, your prayers are just going in the wind. Yeah, yeah. He said, I'm going to have a hard time listening to you, if, again, if you're going to starve my poor. Okay? Who else might be? Poor among us. This we're sinning and we can't accept. So if you're like someone in your family is, you know, comes out and says they're gay, 
Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I was talking with uh, uh, some good people uh, about a month or so ago, and, and they were going through some uh, disciplinary council stuff, and they were about to come through the disciplinary council, and it held some fairly prominent positions, and we're about to come out of that and be and, and have the second disciplinary council where they're going to come back into full fellowship. And there was some kind of some excitement. We're kind of there. And unfortunately, what I said was, great, go ahead and do that and then move. My suggestion would be move. Because sometimes in a warden branch, we have long memories. Absolutely. And I, and I said, the last thing I would want you to do in, as part of the repentance process is have people double clutch and still not be able to reach out and love you the same as they did before. Right. And unfortunately, sometimes that happens. And, and they did. They ended up moving. It also happens in divorces. People divorces think, is another, is that another poor that's out there? Yes. Regardless, of the financial struggle may be there, but what about in the case of just, uh, in fact, I was, I was saying this to a lady the other day. She's she just like, I've, again, I've gone from one of the pillars of the ward to the line item in ward council. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to have that sense and to have that feeling, yes, yes. these are the, our poor that we're supposed to reach out and feed. Yeah. Absolutely. There we go. And if we and, and by the way, once we get that sense that says, uh, are we not all beggars? Then it makes it easier for us to feed the poor among us because we're so grateful. Go back and read uh, King Benjamin's address. And he's done, aren't we all sinners? Aren't we all beggars? Don't we depend on God for everything? How can you withhold your substance, money, time, love, uh, support, caring from those who struggle? Because he's done that with you. So, so we get all we get all of this. Then, so picture this, and that's why he's saying he's going to go after them. Now, so here comes the next part of this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of he goats. Why do you come before me, who hath who hath required this at your hand? Didn't he? Give them the law of Moses? Aren't they doing all of these things? How come he's now coming back and saying, who hath required this of your hand? What is the purpose of this multitude of burnt offerings? <coughs> Why would he say that when it appears that he gave it in the, with the law of Moses? Well, I think they're just, they were doing it superficially. Okay. They've just gone through the motions of it, but their hearts were not in the right place. Okay, there's two levels to this, and that's the, one, that's the first one. The first one is, we're actually doing this, we're doing the, the right things for all the wrong reasons. It's like saying, who, in other words, you're just not listening to the sacrament, you're just walking through that, or you're misusing the sacrament. In some way. How about fasting? How about fasting? Yeah. I mean, they, some of them, they have, been instructed 
Yeah, yeah. Fast, fast Sunday, fasting without a purpose is just an annoying hunger. Yeah. Yeah. So one of it is the purpose behind why we do this. Can you think of another reason why he would be after him on this? They changed the ordinances. They were adding additional things. Where in the Bible does it say how many steps you can take on the Sabbath? Where in the Bible does it describe how long spit can roll before you are you violated the Sabbath day? Or how many grains of wheat you can walk through a field that's got the Savior in trouble? How many grains of wheat can you gather before you are harvesting? Where's all of that? They were changing it. They were adding their own stuff. Yeah. That's what it says in that verse 13 up there. Dana Blazing. Yep. Yep. It's like they added celebrations for the new moon. They were. Big parties. And part of why they were doing that was the fact that part of what they were adding was uh, they were trying, as, as a harlot, they were to the highest bidder, and to make sure that we keep Samaria happy. And the fact, and we want to keep Egypt happy. What are we going to do? How about we just kind of bring in their celebrations as well? Okay, we're just covering the ground. In other words, if we do everybody's celebrations, nobody can get mad at us. It's this idea of appeasement. If we appease everybody, nobody will attack us. Which, of course, we're doing none of that these days. Yes, uh, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain. If we're nice to Hitler, if we praise Hitler, he won't attack us. Dang, he attacked us anyway. Well, he's gobbling up Europe. And that's kind of what they were doing. And that's why, that's why Hezekiah and Josiah came down so, swung to the extreme and came down so strictly, is that under Ahaz, for instance, remember he's going to try and keep the Jehovah worship, but he's also going to do the Baal worship at the same time. And, and the Lord is saying, listen, harlots, with wanton eyes and bringing every, everybody to the highest bidder, whoever's going to keep you safe. There's your problem, okay? All right. Uh, oh, let's see. We're going to get, we're not going to get, we may do this next part next week. I want to do one, one last one here along the same line. Look over at, let's go to Isaiah 2. Because this is the one, if, if anybody's going to be able to, if I said, give me some verses out of Isaiah. This is probably the one that we're more likely to hear because this is one that we recognize, right? And it'll, it shall come to pass in the last days. Oh, wait a minute. He was just talking about the destruction of Israel in about 100 years. Where did he just go? In the last days, meaning our day. Our day. Still to come, right? And, and currently. In, in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto them. Okay, now, let me break it down a little bit this way. 
Because he's, he's about to give us contrasting mountains. And it'll help you understand uh, some of the layers of this. In the last days when... Book of Mormon added when. <coughs> in the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established... Here's the parallelism. Established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say. Now, stop for a second. When we're talking about that uh, in the last days, uh, the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains. This has about five layers of symbolic meaning. The one that we use most often is Salt Lake, right? That was placed in the Rocky Mountains and certainly the prophets have referred to this and said, okay, this is a partial fulfillment of Isaiah. That the Salt Lake Temple was placed in, in the mountains. Okay? High on a mountaintop kind of thing. Um, and shall be exalted above the hills. What else would be that mountain? Temple Any temple, right? There's a mountain high on that mountain. Yeah. It's not a very big mountain. It's a hill. It's a hill. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Hold on to that for a sec. Hold on. We're going to go right there. Hold on. What other mountains are we talking about? Well, the temple. Okay. One could be the headquarters of the church. Sure. So it's not just necessarily temples. As, as Latter-day Saints, are we supposed to kind of be a light to the world? Can't our lives be a mountain? So the mountain of the Lord's house. And, uh, and, and, and uh, we could go into the fact, and it's in uh, Doctrine and Covenants, and I'm not remembering right where it is. It says that we are to become the pillars of the temple. We become the mountains. Mm. And we'll be exalted above the hills. Okay? And now, if we want to talk about this, and so there are current temples, but you're missing one other temple. What other temple are we talking about? We got ourselves, but now let's go way. What what is the ultimate fulfillment of this scripture? The New Jerusalem. Yes, at the very last days, right? And you get that sense, kind of. All nations shall flow unto it. Now it is interesting. Present on a regular basis, are all nations kind of flowing to the Dallas Temple? <laughs> We're kind of hoping for that one, right? Okay. Now, it, it is interesting that we have taken all temples to all nations. So we have flowed to the nations, but that isn't necessarily the nations are necessary. Although I guess they are wherever we go. Those nations are flowing in Ghana or South Africa or Brazil. Well, there is a lot of different nationalities of people that come to that temple. Sure. And yeah. we're taking our names that we've traced back to other nations before they... And they're going through the temple, so we are part of this. Okay? You get that? Now, I love the word, all nations, and again, it's poetry, so I could say, and all, and all nations will go to the temple. What word does he choose to use there? 
flow. Why why use the word flow? It's kind of a set. What flows? Water. And so you watch this flow, and it's like little tributaries, and they all kind of you know come, let us go up, and they they flow. Although what's fascinating about this, we're talking about rivers, something flowing where to a mountain <laughs> upstream. Yeah, you got it. I mean, the, the, the first temple was the Garden of Eden, and we know that it was the headwaters of rivers, which put it on a higher location so that the rivers can then flow, flow down. So we know the Garden of Eden was the first temple, and it was a mountain of some kind or hill. It was a higher place, and the rivers flowed down. But how many places do we know where the water flows up? Wow. So what would it take for water or anything to get drawn uphill? Yeah, you're present. You're watching, President. See you flinch, flinching. Gathering towards a purpose. Yeah, there, there's a reason to be drawn in that direction. Yeah. Anybody ever had the experience of? on a weekday or weekend or something being drawn to the temple I got things to do but got to be there don't know why or drawn to uh, family history work or something and you feel that draw and you're almost being you're being pulled uphill oh I got too many other things I, I'm too busy to go to the temple I can't do this I don't have the time to do this and I'm being drawn I'm flowing uphill I love that image, that they're going to be drawn, they're going to flow, uh, and many people shall say, come ye, let us go up, and boy, we could spend a lesson on, on the idea of a temple and it being up, where there's greater view of things, and better perspective, and safety, and all the things that come with mountain, high on a mountaintopness. Okay. To the mountain of the Lord, and then it is contrasted with, and it's a parallel with, and that's why I love the parallelism. We're going to be drawn to the mountain of the Lord and what? What's the parallel to that? A myth synonym. The same. The house of God. The house of Jacob. The house of Israel. The house of the God of Jacob. That's what he's saying. To be drawn to the temple is to be drawn up the mountain, but it's also to be drawn to the house. The house, literally the house of the home of God, his dwelling place, but also the house meaning Israel. We're into the house of Israel because everybody who's going to be drawn into this house is going to become partakers of all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were part of that house of Israel and all the attendant covenants and blessings and powers that come to that. That make sense? We did make it to chapter 2, right? Okay, that's close. Okay, real quickly then. 
Let me just show this one. Because uh, now we're going to hop down to verse 12 and he'll give you the parallel. This is, this is the contrast to the mountain of the Lord's house. For on the day the Lord of hosts... By the way, he used the word uh, Lord of hosts. Uh, in, in the Book of Mormon, that term is also uh, the Lord of Sabaoth. Lord of hosts meaning the hosts of heaven. The hosts of war, chariots, battle. Not just heavenly nice hosts, but the, the chariots of Israel. This is a God of power and strength. And sometimes it has to be a power of destruction. The day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is, that is proud and lofty. And so now we're suddenly we're back to the present day with Israel. And, and listen to the terms he's going to use. Upon the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. That are those outside of Israel that believe that they're better than. They are, the, he's, he's comparing them to the big trees of Lebanon. They're members of the Sanhedrin and kings and rulers and merchants who think that they're like the cedars of Lebanon. We're beautiful and we're strong and nobody can knock us over. They use the cedars of Lebanon to build the Temple of Solomon. Upon all the high mountains, upon all the hills that are lifted up. If we could give that a different term, and I would maybe even write this in your thing. These are false mountains. These are apostate mountains. Hugh Nibley called the Lehi's dream, and the tree of life is there, and you've got this great spacious building next to him. To that and the mocking people from there. Hugh Nibley called this a temple gone dark. It's an apostate temple with people with fine twine linen who have lifted themselves up off the earth and they are better than those poor schmucks that are down there eating the, you know. We're happier, we're mocking. Okay? Upon all the high mountains, the hills that are lifted up, Upon every high tower and every fenced wall. What's a high tower? What's he referring to? Watchtower. But the, these are the false versions of that. Close. What did she say? False prophets. False, pro <laughs> false prophets. But in this case, every high tower and every fenced wall. Let me ask you. <clears throat> Outside of this church and outside of the temple, <clears throat> where do people go for safety? Where do, where do they, what do they assume will save them? What do they assume will protect them? What do they think will keep out false armies? What, where, where is their false, their, their walls and their towers? Sometimes it's military, it'll be in our military might. What else? Guns. Government. We have enough government. We have enough guns. How about how, how many people are out there that say we don't believe in the in these foolishly devised fables of religion? So we're going to stand very proudly and happily behind our wall of science um. and academia, and we're and we are because we are smarter and stronger and safer. Because all this flood stuff and all of this Moroni 
stuff and gold plate stuff. We think that's crazy. We're going to stand very happily behind our walls of science and logic and reason. And we'll be safe there. Did we say wall of wealth? And I know someone My money will save me. If I have enough money, I can buy off anything. You can have it all, you know. If you got it. Okay? So it's whatever we place our safety in other than the Lord of... And who is saying this? You're putting your safety behind these walls. And who it is that's, that's telling them this? The Lord of... Hosts. The God of heavenly armies. Can you see the contrast behind that? So you can either go up to the mountain of the Lord's house or you can try and stand in your false walls of security, whether it's money or knowledge or being smarter than everybody else or your genealogy or whatever it is. Whatever you are, your false sense of safety that you have placed in here rather than placing in the Lord of hosts. Beautiful contrast. Okay. So with that, let me let me finish with one last quote here, and then we're boy, we're way out of here. Uh, oh, I got all kinds of good stuff here. But, okay, we need we, we need we another. Yes. Oh, I didn't get it. Didn't make the trip. Oh, here it is. That's what I wanted, right there. Uh, we, we didn't have time to talk about uh, that the Lord will set us on His paths, and we may spend more of it uh, next week. But I really want to be able to complete with this quote based on what we just said. Uh, Elder Enzio Boucher. A disciple of Christ is constantly, even in the midst of all regular activities, striving all day long through silent prayer and contemplation to be in the depth of self-awareness to keep him in a state of meekness and loneliness of heart. We stay inside the right walls. We trust in the right place. This is a place where we suddenly see the heavens open as we feel the full impact of the love of Heavenly Father, which fills us with indescribable joy, with this fulfillment of love in our hearts. We will never be happy anymore just being by ourselves or living our own lives. So I was listening to a podcast of a man that has left the church, uh, wandered for years, and then his journey back and how the spirit started stirring in him just when he was trying to explain to a girlfriend uh, what the church believed and did. And he said he started to feel some things that, you know, and the draw and the flow began for him when he was just trying to say Mormons don't believe this and Mormons don't believe that. Uh, fascinating. Um, and, and then he started searching for happiness and he realized his happiness had always been safely inside the walls of the church. And then this, and this has kind of become my mantra, my own personal goal here. I got it from you. We will not be satisfied until we have surrendered our lives into the arms of the loving Christ. And here's the phrase. Until he has become the doer of all our deeds and has become the speaker of all our words. The doer of all our deeds and the speaker of all our words. That is the flow. That is the, we're drawn to that. That is the da- true daughter of Zion for all of us. That I pray we can do.
uh, especially as we start kind of looking through these chapters and find this person. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so your assignment for this week is to go back over and kind of reread uh, Isaiah 1 through 6 and see if some of it now jumps to light. Maybe you see it in a little different light with, with little additional light. Oh, sorry. Who are you going to Israel with? Hot tour going? Bountiful Travel, Dave Hadlock. Uh huh. No. Oh, nobody has to work on that if you're an Orthodox Jew. Probably a lot of times they'll have somebody that is a, maybe not quite as orthodox and have, have, have them do it. Well, anyway, I'll Okay. On the watering turns that we go up there. I have a that's pretty funny.